for this last day of the year. People have moved on from Christmas. In fact, you know, you're still seeing a few Christmas decorations. It's still okay to have them up right now, but pretty soon you're going to be thought poorly of if your lights are still on your house or your Christmas tree is still in your living room and because we've been moved on, right? We, we think about things and we're like, oh, move on. And as soon as the new year hits, well, you go into Walmart and pretty, they're, they're talking about Valentine's Day. And, and by the time Valentine's it's like February 15th. I know Valentine's Day is on the 14th, but on the 15th, it's Easter, right? And we just move forward, keep moving on, thinking about the next thing, just moving on. But there's a reality that, that um, maybe it's not always wise to do that. Well, we got a lot of things to think about this year. As a church, we have a number of things ahead of us that I'm excited about, that I want to be thinking about, that I want us all together thinking about. Our equip class for the winter term, having everybody together and walking through just who we are as a church and, and developing that as a core group again and preparing us to live the mission that God has given us as a people. I'm, ex- I'm terribly excited about that. Uh, as, as we start this new rhythm on Sunday nights, the first Sunday of every month, beginning to pray together, we don't have all the details of that worked out. You're going to show up, and we're not going to have child care. We don't know who might show up, and it might be a little bit messy, but us gathering together to pray in this new rhythm, I'm excited for that. I'm looking forward to that. I, we're going to have a baptism next Sunday. I'm talking to another person already about uh, a profession of faith that they've made and a baptism that they need to step into. That's a discipleship process that we're working on. Uh, we, we have work in Montana and Africa to look forward to. You've, you've seen the sweet reliefs and the, and the fundraiser that we did, you know, for Montana. They leave in February. I'm headed to Africa with a, a new partnership that's been developing over the last year, Bethlehem Christian Academy, and we're doing some leadership development things this, this February, and I hope and pray that that prepares us and enables us to do leadership development in our two villages there in Senegal. Um, And we're going to continue to develop and strengthen the partnerships we have between these local churches that you saw begin last year. Just excited to see how the Lord will work. So it's not that we can't look forward, but we're always, we're, we're among a people that are always just trying to move forward, just move on to the next thing and consume that next thing because they need that next fix to find their satisfaction, to find their joy, to find their peace, to find their purpose, to find whatever it is they think they're missing. There's so many things that we can look forward to, but there's one thing we must never move on from, and that is abiding in Christ. And so we're going to turn back to the very thing we talked about on Christmas Eve. We're going to read the same verses, and we think about some of the same things, but it's actually going to be helpful, I think, to help us as we look forward to not just move on, but to abide, to, to remain, to stay in Christ. So John 15, verses 1 through 11, we'll read them, we'll pray, we'll read these verses, we'll pray, and then we will dig into them and see what the Lord has for us today. The word says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your work and your word. Grateful for your, sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for coming. Thank you for these words. Words that can encourage, as we'll mention here in a bit, but words that also provide a strong warning. Help us, Father. Help us to see the areas in which we are distracted from abiding in you. Help us to see the areas today in which we are tempted to move on to that next thing instead of just abiding in you. Help us, Father. I, I, even thinking about some of the struggles that face uh, uh, American Christians in the year to come. The tensions that are going to boil over, I suspect, in the year to come in our, in, our, in our nation. I'm certain we'll see that in the church. Help us, as this local congregation, this body of believers, this expression of your church, help us remain, stay dwell, abide in your son. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you, you're already thinking, well, I mean, we just looked at this. Is there really more we could do? Like, we, we, it's another thing that we kind of move on through, right? We've, we've hit a text, and we want to move on from a text. It's one of the struggles that we, or not one of the struggles, it's one of the pushbacks we feel and hear at times in our community groups that we do through the middle of the week where we do sermon discussion where the idea is is that I'm going to preach or somebody's going to preach from the text and then you're going to get together as as brothers and sisters in Christ and seek to not just understand what was preached but really look at the text and dig on it more. I can guarantee you in the hours of study that I do and I know this is true of those that have preached because we've talked about it we, we are learning way more in the study than we can bring in the 45 to 50 minutes that we get each week. There is so much in each one. But we're conditioned to move on. And so what do Christians do in America today? We, we, we get our Bible study. We go to the Christian bookstore. We buy our Bible study by the right name, right? It's got to be the right name. If it's not the right name, then you're not a good Christian. So we get our Bible study by the right name author. And then we sit down and study it. And we consume it. And then what do we do? We've got to get another Bible study. And we consume another one. And we consume another one. And we consume another one. And there's a whole, there's a whole industry of Christian commodities that are being sold and, and bartered in. And I, I'm grateful for the access that we have. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I recommend a lot of books. I read a lot of books. I do a lot of studies. But we have begun to produce a consumption of Christian 
commodities that look much like the world consuming their entertainment. Maybe it's important that we just stop and quit thinking, oh, we need to move on to that next passage. We need to read another passage. We need to have another word and just rest and soak in the word as it is to abide in him, to abide in his word and his word abide in us. And for the sake of making sure that we're all on the same page, we're going to hit some of the same points we did from the other night, not, not, to, not to belabor it, but just to give a bit more explanation of each one. And we're going to start with the idea that Jesus makes this exclusive claim. We must abide in Christ. He leaves no room for any other. Like all, the, all the things that we can debate about this passage, we cannot debate about this. He is making a claim of exclusivity. He is not leaving any room for anything else apart from Christ. The way he says it is apart from me. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Now, I know that flies in the face of, of most of us in this room because, hey, I, I, I feel like I'm pretty good at some things. I feel like I can get some things done. I, I've got some talents. I've got some abilities. I, I mean, I, I just sat with a group of guys not long ago, and we went around the circle, and we're like, just to kind of get to know one another, one of the things I typically do will, will ask is, name something that you're better at than anybody else. And everybody feels a little bit shy at first. And I say, hey, it's not bragging if it's true, right? So if it's true, if you're, really, you're not trying to brag, you're not trying to be boastful, you're just trying to tell us you're better than us at this. And so I typically will pick something out of my aviation past. I was an aircraft mechanic for, I don't know, 18 or 20 years, something like that. And so I'm pretty sure that I can bore scope a Pratt & Whitney 120 engine better than anybody else in the room. Anybody else do that? I'm guessing because of that experience, I'm more likely to be able to use a borescope to find something wrong inside of you than you are. Want to challenge that? The, the, the idea being, the, the, the whole thing being, I feel, pretty, I, I feel pretty accomplished. Like I can do some stuff. And I'm certain if we walked around the room, if we went around the room and I gave you an opportunity, there's some things that you could say, I can do that. I could do that better than you. But what Jesus is saying is, you cannot do anything that is of any meaning or will bear any lasting fruit or that won't burn up or fade away or rot and, and, and blow away like chaff in the wind. You cannot do anything of eternal significance without a union with him, without a deep and abiding connection to him. We must abide in Christ. So what does that mean? Because I think there's a way in which we often, we often make this, a, this mystical idea, this, this super internal, special abiding in Christ, like this mystical thing that we can't really define. And I'm like, I don't think that's what he intended to do to us. To, to speak this word that was so mysterious, nobody could really describe it or define it. The word abide, the word he chose to speak of this is the word minno. It means to remain, stay, or reside, to live in one place, to stay committed, right? To remain on or in something, to, to not move on. 
That's radically different in a culture that's always moving on. But he calls us to remain, to stay, to reside in him, abiding in Christ. And I said this the other night, that abiding in Christ, it's enduring in faith in him. Not faith in him plus something, not something else. My faith is in this and I'm going to sprinkle a little Jesus on it. Like I got my religious practice and now I'm going to put a little Jesus on it. Or coming along and saying, hey, Jesus is great, but you need this also. It's him. It's faith in him. It's dependence on him. It's following after him. It's obeying him. It's persevering in him. Not him and something and not something with a little Jesus. It's him. Abiding in Christ is remaining united with him. Establishing our whole life in and upon him. From sun up till sundown. Three uh, 365 days out of the year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, abiding in Christ as living a life which he is the central focus, the solid foundation, and the highest priority. Well, that's pretty simple <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> but we're stuck in a culture that's always moving on, and we feel the same temptations to always move on. So what Jesus is doing, though, he's speaking metaphorically. He's not, he's not saying that, hey, you get together and you stay in this place and you just, Jesus, 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 Jesus. You never say anything but his name. It, it, the intent is this metaphorical idea, this, this, this likening to a life in which we don't understand life apart from him. We don't pursue life apart from him, that every aspect of our life, tomorrow morning, waking up, and many of you will go back to work after, not tomorrow morning, the day after, because tomorrow, many of you will be on a, on a, vac- a holiday. But on Tuesday morning, stepping back into life, going to work with him in mind, living as a spouse in your home with him in mind, parenting your children with him in mind, living as a citizen of these United States with him in mind, trusting him when things don't go our way, celebrating him when things do go our way. This is what it is, and this is what he's calling us to but he doesn't make this claim without giving us reason. Or he doesn't make this claim without showing us that he's really trustworthy and, and able, worthy, if you will, worthy of this level of devotion. We must abide in Christ based on his words because I am the true vine. You know, D.A. Carson, who wrote probably the most reliable, most... most uh, it's considered one of the most reliable, trustworthy commentaries on the book of John, makes this note. He, he, he says, I didn't put this on the screen. It's, it's just a, a description. I just thought I'd read it to you. So just follow along, listen along as I, as I read it. In the Old Testament, the vine is a common symbol for Israel, the covenant people of God. And there's a number of references, Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, uh, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 15, 17, 19, Hosea 10. So there's a number of references in which God, through his word and through the prophets, through the Psalms, references Israel as a vine. Most remarkable, D.A. Carson goes on to point out, most remarkable is the fact that whenever historic Israel, the nation of Israel, the historic people of Israel... 
Whenever historic Israel is referred to under this figure, it is the vine's failure to produce good fruit that is emphasized along with the corresponding threat of God's judgment on the nation. Jesus is coming along and he's saying, hey, I'm the authentic vine. I'm the one that God had. These were placeholders. They were shadows. They were types. I am the fulfillment. I am the true vine. And where's the good fruit coming from? The true vine. The Old Testament's filled with stories of how Israel, the nation, the people, couldn't live up to the demands or the expectations. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. And the fruit that's going to come, the eternal, lasting, good fruit that comes is from me. We must abide in Christ because he is the true vine, but that immediately lends itself to the second reason. He is the source of true fruit, or he is the true source of fruit. Now, I mentioned this that night on Christmas Eve that I don't know a lot about vine keeping or, or uh, I came across this word a lot in my study, viticulture. It's a new word for me. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Am I saying it? Viticulture? Okay, all right. Close enough. That's good enough for me. <laughs> um, I, it's a new word for me. I didn't know it, but I don't know, I don't know about these things. Um, so I just always would have, I just would have automatically assumed the fruit gets the credit for producing or the, the branch gets the credit. That's a good branch. Look at all the fruit on that branch. But in reality, as, as we begin to understand it and learn, and then even Jesus points out that, that really the vine and the union between the vine and the branch are what makes fruit actually grow. Branches can't do anything on their own if they have no connection to the vine. And a vine can continue to grow branches to bear fruit. The vine gets the credit. But, but Jesus makes that clear that, that he is the true vine and he is the true source of fruit. In fact, in John 15, 3, he mentions the only reason that he can have this conversation with these followers or with these people that are coming after him is because he's already made them clean. Already you are clean. Your hope of fruitfulness is because I have cleansed you. But to make it even closer or more, more, more clear, a little bit later in John 15, 16, in this same narrative passage, Jesus says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So not only is he saying, hey, you're supposed to abide in me, you're responsible to abide in me, but the reason you're doing that is because I chose you to do it. I appointed you to do it. And I'm going to make you able to bear a fruit that abides, to bear a fruit that remains, to bear a fruit that, is, that stays, that, that is eternal. He's taking credit his work, he gets the glory for all of it. It all belongs to him. These disciples, should they step out and suddenly think, hey, look at all we've done. Somebody pat us on the back. Look at the people we've healed. Look at the, look at the books of the Bible we wrote. Look at the, all the people that are following after us just to keep them humble and remind them they can't move on from Jesus he reminds them the only reason they're able to do what they've done or will do is because it starts with him. His choice of them, his appointment of them in this role. The only chance a branch has to be fruitful is by its union 
by its connection to the vine. The only chance a Christian has to do anything of eternal significance, of real lasting value, is in abiding in Christ. But we're so quick to move on. Oh, come on, we needed the gospel when we got saved, but we need, we need the gospel plus something else now. He is the source of the true fruit, so we must abide in him. He is the true union between God and his people. Everything God does for us, everything God does to us, everything God could potentially do against us is in relationship to our connection to the vine. We receive God's blessings through the vine. We receive God's blessings through Christ. We receive God's blessings in light of our relationship to him. We are pruned or removed in light of the relationship we have with Jesus. Or we are blessed and, 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 and made more fruitful based on our relationship with him. Or we are removed and bound up together with the un, other unfruitful ba- uh, branches and burned based on our relationship with Jesus. Everything God does with, for, or against us is in light of our relationship with Christ. Not how many times you showed up at church on Sunday. Not how many times you attended community group. Not whether your children believe or you finally coerced your spouse into to, to doing the things you wanted them to do or, or because you finally... Um, Shared the gospel at your work or, or because you did all the other Christian things you're supposed to do because you finally read your Bible through in a year. God doesn't relate to you or work with you because of those things. He works with you. He works for you or against you based on your relationship to Christ. Now, I don't want to dismiss the importance of those things I just mentioned but they are not the way in which God has determined he would bring his blessing to you. It is in and through Christ. If we do anything else, if we do all of the grand and, and, and noble things in the name of anything other than Christ, it is vanity, as the author of Ecclesiastes tells us. It is, it is a wisp of smoke that blows away. It is chaff in the wind. It is meaningless in the long-term standing. So I think I, I read from Spurgeon on, on this sermon, and I, 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 from his sermon on this passage, and I think he said something to the effect of, it is, a, it is a bottle of smoke. It is meaningless, useless. And we went further on Christmas Eve, and we began to see that, yes, as we abide in him, that we must abide in him, and as we abide in him, that's where we find our, our, our ability to know, to, to remain, to abide, to stay in his love, to be given his peace, to, to know his joy. I mean, he's called out love and joy immediately in this passage. In the broader context, he calls out peace and, and hope, and it's through abiding in him that we get to live in these realities I would sum it up this way. The only way to live the fruitful life that proves our union with Christ is true and glorifies God is to abide in Christ as he abides in us. 
The only way to live the fruitful life that proves our union with Christ and glorifies God is to abide in Christ as he abides in us. And there's three ways that we could take this. There's three different streams that we could go down as we think on these things. First is encouragement and exhortation for the faithful Christian. One idea is encouragement. God, if you have produced any amount of real true fruit, you will produce more fruit because God does that work through Jesus. You do not have to be wondering where the fruit will come from or how you will achieve it or what you will do. God will ensure it happens. My father is the vine dresser. He prunes a branch so it becomes more fruitful. He ensures your fruitfulness. So don't carry that part. Don't carry that burden. Let me encourage you with this. He does the work that enables you to do the thing he calls you to do. But it's also exhortation because repeatedly Jesus is calling us to some things. He's calling us to live in light of something. He's commanding us. This is an imperative. Abide in me. It is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a best practice. It's not a, hey, when you get around to it, abide in me. It's a command. He's going to call us to obey his commands in just a moment. So so it's encouragement. God makes you fruitful. And it's exhortation. It's live the right way. Abide in Christ. It's a both and reality there. It's an opportunity. The second way we could look at this is an opportunity for the non-Christian, the unbeliever. That there's potentially people sitting in this room, potentially people that will listen to this, potentially people you know and and, and have relationship with that don't know Jesus. His words are an opportunity for them to realize the only way I have any hope of anything lasting is through Christ. There's only, he, he's the only way. He is the solution. There's no other opportunity. There's no other pathway. There's no other thing I, else I can run after. It gives every unbeliever the opportunity to realize what I'm doing is not working. I'll turn to Jesus and abide in him. Then finally, the third way that we can approach this, this idea that the only way to live this fruitful life that proves our union with Christ is true and glorifies God is to abide in Christ as he abides in us. The third way we can approach this is a strong warning for the nominal Christian or for the Christian that has gotten awfully distracted by all kinds of other things. And it's just seeking to move on to something else. To find their satisfaction and hope in something else. To look for joy in something other than him. To, to think that they're going to achieve peace in their life. Or for that nominal person who has pretended and played religion. But has never really ever trusted in him to begin with. This is an opportunity for them to hear that warning, to heed that warning, to do something different. Because we must abide in Christ as he abides in us if we want the eternally lasting fruit, the abiding fruit, the the fruit that remains. Now, because it's so important that we abide in him, because it's so necessary, because Jesus makes this claim of exclusivity we don't just need to understand what it is to abide in him. We don't just need to understand why, it's him, why he's the reason he's worthy of this devotion. We need to understand how to do it. So how do we abide? Like, what are we going to do? Like, what, 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 what's the secret? Give me my, 
give me my 12-step program. Well, I'm going to give you about five things, but it's not a 12-step program. Because I can't, I can't give you a bunch of different stuff that, that ends at this promise that all of a sudden it becomes easy. It's just the same things we've always been calling one another do, to do as Christian people. In fact, I can't help but hear the words of my friend Melissa, who was in a study with me for a, a couple of years. We did a discipleship process, and her and a group of people helped me put together this couch to 5K idea of, of you've never believed all the way to the place where I could see you potentially go plant or, or um, be a pastor in the church. And they were part of the first group that helped me do that. And one of the things that she realized through that, that series of study was, so what you're telling me is I'm supposed to just read my Bible and pray more. Yeah, that's pretty much right. Over and over, we come back to this place. So as we're sitting here in a time, in a place where, okay, I agree, we must abide in Christ. I can see it in the text. And if you can't, maybe I didn't do a good enough job, but, but come and talk to me after, I'll, I'll, I'll show you again. I, I, I agree Jesus is worthy of abiding in. He's the one. He, he's able to make these exclusive claims. I, I see what he's doing here. He, he is it. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the next day, because the sermon will still be fresh enough. But sometime by the end of the week, you're going to be caught up in all the cultural things that are going on around you and begin to think about moving on. I'm going to say the best thing you can do this year is you look at 2024 and what you're looking forward to and what you're planning. The best thing you can do for any of it is abide in Christ. So how are you going to do that? We abide in Christ by trusting him, his power, his grace, his work, his word, him, and all that comes with him. We abide in Christ by trusting him. And he doesn't call it out explicitly in, this, in, in these 11 verses we've just read. It's inherently, it's, it's, it's implied all over this. But it becomes clear as you step back and you read the broader context. So, so this context actually starts back in chapter 13 where Jesus sits down and begins to wash his disciples' feet and he begins to teach them. He begins to speak to them and starts telling them and preparing them for what's about to happen to him after they leave this place. In chapter 14, at, at the end of chapter 13 and into chapter 14, we have what's called the farewell discourse. And it goes all the way from the end of chapter 13 all the way to the end of chapter 16. It's one of the longest sections of teaching that Jesus gives. And in this teaching, he's already made clear the necessity of faith. that To, to know him, to, to follow him, to be after him, to do the things that he does, we must believe in him. It's made clear in chapter 14. So, so I, would just, I, would, I would just put this for you that this is where it all starts. Faith in Jesus that, 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 that is combined with faith in the right president, the right culture, the right societal approach, Maybe even the right doctrinal perspectives. Let me, let me just be careful here. There's some, there's, there's some certain ones that we can't give up, but there's secondary and tertiary doctrines that, that we can still discuss and debate as brothers and sisters in Christ. Get what I'm saying? 
Let's denominational perspective, right? So faith in Jesus plus the right denominational perspective. Let's put it that way. That, that actually, when we begin to do that, when we begin to say my faith in Jesus plus my faith in my doctrinal perspective, my, 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 my faith in, my, in, in political view, my faith in the right societal approach, when we do that, we actually undermine our faith in Jesus. You cannot have faith in Christ while also trying to trust in yourself or the world around you. They do not mix. And there's no ability to, to mix them. There's nothing that emulsifies the oil and water in this case. They are completely separate. And as soon as you add one faith to the other, you destroy the first faith. We abide in Christ by trusting in him and him alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. No one can do anything apart from their union with him. That's it. He's it, so our faith is in him. We abide in Christ by trusting in him, his power, his grace, his work, his word, everything that comes with him. We abide in Christ by filling our minds with his word. And if, listen, if we really believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is only in him and abiding in him, that brings us life and enables us to bear abiding fruit, if we really believe that, then we wouldn't look at his word as a discipline to be approached. We would look at it as the very source of life and joy and glory. See, it actually betrays the fact that we think there's something left for us in this world when his word is something we've got to figure out how to discipline ourselves to rather than run to. Rather than get everybody to hold us accountable so I'll be in it. Right? Like, I, I just, I'm, I'm struggling being in his word. Because you don't really trust him. Or that the only way to true life and true joy and true peace and true hope and true love, to really bear true fruit, lasting fruit, you don't really believe that his word will do it. And so you depend on everybody else to help you get there. I'm not trying to call you a bad Christian, I'm just calling the fact is we're normal Christians. And we have this belief, and then we have this unbelief, and they're always in comp competition. Let me encourage you in something. Let me just challenge you to think about something. <clears throat> I want to say this carefully. It's not in my notes, so, so, but I, I want to be careful as I say this. If you recognize, if you see that you are not in the word the way that you know you should be in the word, the way to, to get to the word, and the way to begin to spend time in the word is not beat yourself up and shame yourself and make yourself feel bad. It's to look at Jesus, find him worthy. Test, is he, really, is, he really, is he really good? Well, how are you going to do that? <laughs> you turn to his word. So I know this from my own life and my own experience, so it's anecdotal. I know and I, it may look a little bit different the way it works out in your life, but 
But I was at the end of my rope. I don't know what rock bottom really is, but I know what my experience of rock bottom was. It scares me to think I could have been lower. And I woke up one morning and I realized what I'm doing is not working. And God had put a number of faithful men in my life saying over and over, it was the same phrase, different people, same phrase, you need to be in his word. So one day I drove away from work, I parked under a tree out at the airport and I opened my Bible, I didn't know what else to do, so I opened my Bible to Matthew and I just began to read through the New Testament. And I can't remember exactly when it happened. I can't remember if it was the first reading or the second reading. I got to Revelation and the end of Revelation and I didn't know what else to do, so I just started reading from Matthew again. (laughs) And I began to read through again. It was either in the first reading or the second reading. It didn't take long. Suddenly, I began to hear from God. Not in an audible voice. Not in some crazy, like, supernatural. I mean, it was supernatural. But when I tell you that I believe that the Word of God is the Word that works, that reading and studying and spending time in the Scripture bears fruit in your life, I'm telling you that because I have found it to be true, and every person I have ever seen do it doesn't stay the same. And they quit enjoying the things of the world as much as they begin to enjoy the things of God. I can't help but the, the, the think of the Psalms, uh, uh, the, the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119.11. I put the verse on the screen for you. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's not this legalistic approach that if I get all the commands in my head, then all of a sudden I don't sin against him. It's that everything about me changes. That the way I think about the world, the things I desire in the world, the things that, that, that make me mad and, and make me happy begin to change. Not because I've done something, but because his word is transforming me. And that's what he's telling us. He says in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Your desires are going to be matched to the the desires of God. Your your wants and dreams and hopes and, and priorities and everything about you is going to be shifted and changed because his word is the word that works. We abide in Christ by filling our minds with his word. As James points out in his letter, though, we don't want to just be a people who hear, who read, and who consume his word. There's a way in which many of us are duped into this this thinking that if I just keep my Bible studies going, I'll be a good person. Knowledge puffs up. It makes us arrogant. It calls us to depend on what's happening, and what what we can do. Paul warns us of that. James reminds us in this way that we're not just to be hearers. We're not just to be readers or consumers of the word. We are to be doers of it, to, to put it into practice. So we abide in Christ by filling our minds with his word, and we continue to abide in Christ, or we abide in Christ by obeying his commands, by applying his word. Immediately in this context, he's called out loving one another. The same, sacrificial, beneficial, not, not the foofy, oh, I love you, right? Just this word. It's word and deed. It's a sacrificial effort. It's a beneficial effort for the person you're, you're doing it to. They, they gain from it, but it costs you. It, it's, a, it's a choice. It's an action. It's, it's, a, it's not just an emotion. 
And it doesn't count on the person you're doing it for. I mean, what if, what, what if Christ's love for us was dependent upon us? His love, we receive his love in an unconditional offer, right? But it is conditioned upon his nature. His love is conditioned upon him, not us. And he calls us to love one another like he has loved us. So we don't condition. I don't, I, I'm not able. I'm not, I'm not loving you like Christ has loved you if I say, when you're lovable, I'll love you. Now, I won't tell you I'm not tempted to do that sometimes. <laughs> but it is not Christ-like love when we say, you must measure up, you must earn, you must show me you are worthy of my love. The truest form of his love is loving others when they abandon, when they criticize, still longing for and going after their good. Serving one another. In, in the broader context, he speaks of this. John 13, he shows us. He, he wraps an apron around his waist. He kneels at his disciples' feet and he washes their feet. The, the job reserved for the lowest of all servants, he does it. And he says, I've set an example for you. Now you go and do likewise. Now I think there's a way in which we could take that, that yeah, he, what, what he's saying is physical service, selfless service. But I think there's a spiritual component as well that we're called to, to, to wash one another, to ensure that the others, that our brothers and sisters in Christ are being cleansed by the word of Christ and living in obedience to Christ. So you don't know, well, just be a people who know what the Bible says, who can, who can answer the trivia questions, but their life doesn't look anything like a Christian or Christ. We want to be people who, whose lives are, are marked by a knowledge that, that gains understanding as we apply it, as we put it to action, that then grows to wisdom as that understanding matures and develops into experience so that the knowledge met with application becomes a mature Christian person. D.A. Carson, in his, in his commentary, he says this about it. So, such words must so lodge in the disciples' mind and heart that conformity to Christ, obedience to Christ, is the most natural or supernatural thing in the world. Sinclair Ferguson, in writing on what it is to, or, or how it is that we abide in Christ, says, in a nutshell, abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. In other words, our relationship to Christ is intimately connected to what we do with our Bibles. So if we go home and we close this thing up and we set it down on our table waiting for next week and we don't open any other copy of it, but this is just a placeholder for, hey, it's there for me when I go back to church on Sunday. But we never spend time in it. Why in the world would we think that we're going to know the love and joy and peace and, and hope and the, and the bearing of fruit in our lives? We abide in Christ by trusting him, by, by our faith in him, by, by filling our minds with his words, by obeying his commands. Let me challenge you this year. As you look at 2024 and all the things that are out ahead of you, don't let this year go by without spending more time in the word than you did last year. 
you know, we get, get at these ideas, oh, I'm going to give to this charity or I'm going to give to this person. I'm going to do this thing. So I'm going to give up a coffee a day. I'm not going to go to Starbucks for one of my coffees. Let me just encourage you. Take that, take, take, that, take that thought. Take that idea. And just turn it to your time. Turn off the television. Set down Facebook. Walk away from CNN or Fox or whoever it is that you get your propaganda from. I don't know. I just want to say something else. but Shut them off. Let your subscription to the Daily Wire go. And pick up your Bible and put that in place of it. I've given you about 10 opportunities to approach the Bible in different ways. I bet if we didn't fill our lives with so much pursuit of entertainment and extracurricular activities, reading through the Bible in a year wouldn't seem such like, a big, like such a big deal. Or the idea of reading the Bible through broadly over the course of a year, while at the same time reading it closely, because we're reading the same letter or the same passage over and over and over until it's imprinted upon our brains. Though, though we may not be able to recite it word for word, we know exactly what's there. Doing that at the same time, I'm betting that wouldn't seem like that big a deal. I'm guessing if we really took an allotment of our time, we could do something much more fruitful with a lot of it. Abiding in Christ as we abide in his word and seek to obey its commands. Loving one another, serving one another. We abide in Christ by praying in his name. I, I, I love this. If you ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. And so there's a direct connection between the word of God and the praying to God. And, and you might think, oh man, that's a, that's a bold statement. That's a big promise. Like that means I can say anything. I can ask anything. Jesus, the one caveat is abiding in him. It's trusting in him, remaining in him, being about him, having our minds transformed by his word as we abide in his word. As it does a work in us. He's not misspeaking here. Like they, This is recorded four times in the farewell discourse. This is one of them. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in my name, when you abide in me and I in you, when my word is in you and you ask the Father to work, he will do the things that you ask him to do. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, in the, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John 16, 23 through 24, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, I truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus wasn't, it wasn't like a slip up that John kind of caught and recorded. Four times in the farewell discourse from John 14 to John 16, he tells us, ask it in my name. 
being transformed by me, being about the things I am about, living as a reflection and a representation of me, the Father will do for you what you ask him to do. So this isn't your path to comfort. This isn't your path, your opportunity to get a bunch of worldly riches and a, and a, bunch, of, a bunch of getting your own way, like, oh, I need a new car. I need a million dollars. I need it. This is you beginning to be transformed by the work of God through the word of God as you abide in his son. And your heart, your mind, and your desires, and your, your, your affections are transformed. And your desire for his will to be done over your will begins to grow. So that you really could truly say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And mean it. Why don't you have, James tells us, because you don't ask. Sometimes you ask and you ask with wrong motives. The whole idea that Jesus is after is that having been so transformed by abiding in him that we continue to abide in him as we seek his father's will in the same way that he sought his father's will. So that when we ask the father to act, we are asking the father to do what the father already plans to be done. And we might go to him like Jesus in the garden and we might say something, something like, hey, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will. Yours be done. And God will ensure his will is accomplished. And your prayer will always be answered affirmatively. We abide in him by praying in his name. We abide in Christ by bearing witness to him in the world. We, we abide in him when we prioritize his mission over our own. We, we abide in him when we make his purpose, his will, more valuable, a higher priority in our life than our own. When we seek to see his kingdom established rather than our own. This is the abiding fruit. This is what he's after. And again, it's, it, it, it's, it's implicit in this passage, but you get to see a bigger picture of it when we step back and look at the broader context. After Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he says to them in John 13, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. In his mind, as Jesus is bowing and washing their feet, in his mind is the reality that he's about to send his disciples. In the same way that he was sent by the Father. And the one who receives the, his disciple receives the one who sent the Son. You get it? And the one who rejects the disciple doesn't just reject Jesus, but rejects the one who sent Jesus. He's already got this in his mind. He washes their feet. He begins to teach them. And then in John 15, right after, right after this abiding fruit and this, this fruitfulness conversation that's wound up in this idea of doing the things that Jesus is doing, being the representatives of Jesus on the earth, Jesus, in the very next passage, begins to prepare them to live in a world that hated him. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So as you're out there abiding in me, reflecting and representing me, if you're, if you're 
uh, hated, if you're disliked, if you're ridiculed, if you're rebuked, if you're, if you're suffering as a result of that, just know, just know, you're with me. That's abiding in me. And finally, after his resurrection, I'm sorry, just at the very end of this. So he's going to get to the end of this discourse in John 16, and he's going to turn and begin to pray in John 17, called the high priestly prayer. And he says in the middle of that, to the Father, John 17, 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He doesn't ask them to be removed. He doesn't ask them to, hey, hey, God, just make sure nothing bad happens to them. Make sure that they don't ever suffer. Make sure that they don't ever deal with hardship. Make sure that, that they got nice, comfy lives, that they all make a million dollars and, and live wealthy, abundant lifestyles on this earth. He doesn't pray any of that. He prays for our protection because he knows, and he's about to say, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. They need you to protect them. And then after his resurrection, the very first appearance, John records on the night of Jesus' resurrection, the disciples are gathered except for Thomas, who will see him next, the, the following week. Jesus said to them, John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. We cannot abide in Christ if we will not live on his mission. If we will not live as a people sent to bear witness to him. It astonishes me, it's shocking to me how, how clear it is in the scripture, how closely connected being a follower of Christ and a sent one from Christ is connected. And yet so many Christians would measure their maturity and their faithfulness to God based on doing the religious things like showing up to church and going to Bible studies and and then they will justify their action in not bearing witness. It seems to me that we're supposed to be about both. And again, I, I, I don't want you to hear me say, I, I face the same fears. I get ridiculed. I get disliked. I get unfriended off of Facebook. I've had family members not want to have anything to do with me. I don't like rejection. One of my greatest fears is rejection. I hate it. it. scares me to death. But the most loving thing we can do towards another person, the best service we can offer another person, is to call them to abide in Jesus, to call them to begin trusting in him, to show them their sin so that they'll live in repentance and that they'll run to Jesus. How else can we abide in him if we don't go in his name and go where he says he'll be? His promise to be with us to the end of the age in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, his promise to be with us to the end of the age is connected to a promise or to a command to go in and make him known. Bruce Milne writes, we go not because we are worthy or equipped or attractive or skilled or experienced, but how many of us think that that's, I gotta be worthy enough to tell somebody about Jesus? I don't know enough. I don't have all the right answers. If that's your approach, if you don't have all the right answers today, I guarantee you, you'll never have all the right answers. Because somebody's gonna come up with a question that you can't answer, that's gonna show that you need Jesus too. Oh. It's going to prove my imperfection. 
We don't go because we're attractive. If you think that you, you, oh, I can be smart enough, bright enough, beautiful enough to attract people, that's empty smoke. That's, that's, that's vanity in, in more ways than one. If you think you're skilled enough, experienced enough, Paul stood up and began to preach the gospel immediately upon being saved by Christ. And as soon as the scales fell off his eyes, it says he got up and he began to preach the gospel. Then he goes away and begins to study. We do not go. We go not because we are worthy or equipped or attractive or skilled or experienced or in any way suitable and appropriate. We go because we have been summoned and sent. We have been called by him to abide in him. And part of abiding in him is going in his name and bearing witness to him in the world. The only way to the fruitful life that we all long for, that proves our union with Christ is true and glorifies God, is to abide in Christ as he abides in us. Let's pray.